So if you would please turn to 1 John in your Bibles, letter of 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 4. This is our third part sermon uh, on chapter 4 of 1 John. And I broke it up into three parts really because um, there's really three main sections. And the first one is, what is it? Well, the, the overall theme is, what does a spirit-filled Christian look like? What characterizes a spirit-filled Christian? Because the, first, the beginning part of chapter 4 begins with this idea of testing the spirits. Very end of chapter 3, um, saying that uh, this spirit whom he's given us, that's how we know that he abides in us. And so what that spirit-filled Christian looks like in the first section was that we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. And then the next section, starting in verse 7, that we know the God of love. So first, we know the spirit of truth and error. Secondly, we know the God of love. And this third part, this final part in chapter 4, is that we love others. That spirit-filled Christians love others. So we're going to be taking a more practical look at what is it, what does it look like to love others well? So that's what we'll be doing this morning. If you would, if you're able, please stand as we read God's holy and inspired and inerrant word, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God in whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I began last sermon uh, like this. The fact that the apostle is often called the apostle of love. That this section is so concentrated with the ideas of love that it's the most concentrated section of all of Scripture. That even beyond the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, this has more instances of of the word love, the word agape, in, in all the Scriptures. 29 times in this section do we see the word love uh, listed. Now remember, what our question is for this whole section is what defines a spirit-filled Christian. And so what we're going after today is this idea that we love others, that spirit-filled Christians love others. Now, that's easy to say, but it's hard to do. It's hard to love others well, is it not? We don't particularly feel, feel like loving others all the time, do we? 
I don't wake up eager to love everybody around me. That's just not my natural bent, right? I don't know if that is for you. Just pouring, outpouring of love towards your spouse in the morning. Loving others sometimes seems to be more of a pain than a joy. But John here in our passage gives us three reasons why we might struggle to love others, including fear, hate, and forgetting that people bear the divine image. So how do we free ourselves from fear, hate, and the the denial of the image of God? That's what we're going to examine this morning. You know, last week I opened uh, the message with the fact that Christianity is the only major religion to have a personal God of love at the center of what we believe. That the love of God, that, that, that God is love, is at the center of everything we believe in our faith. Not Buddhism, nor Islam, or Hinduism teaches that. Only Christianity. But also unique to Christianity is the motivation to love. The reason to love. Why do we love? Why are we told to love? Sure, God commands us to love, but he doesn't tell us to love without a massively important reason. And that reason's clear, and it's been repeated throughout John's letter. We love because we've been loved by God. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, an atoning sacrifice. Verse 11 of chapter 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And in verse 19, what we just read, we love because he first loved us. Do you see the pattern? Do you see what John is trying to hammer into our heads, into our hearts? That we love because Jesus loved us, because God loved us. We love in response to a great love. You and I have been loved first. You and I have been shown grace. You and I have been welcomed in, accepted, saved, and therefore we're free to love others. But this isn't just a model that we're supposed to emulate. Okay, Jesus died. He lived this perfect life. I'm supposed to live like that? Sure, that's true. But what it also is, and more importantly, is it's a transforming power at work. That grace transforms you. The gospel changes you. From a person who's trying to earn and avoid punishment from God to one who, accepts, who has been accepted, been loved, and then can share that with others. Do you guys see how that's freeing? When you've, been, when you've received that kind of love. So John's message this morning, what he's communicating is that we love others because he first loved us, which means we're not held back by fear, we're not controlled by hate, and we love God whose image other people bear. So those are three points this morning. It's in your outline in the bulletin that the spirit-filled Christian is not held back by fear, is not controlled by hate, and loves the image of God. Look at verse 18 as we start with this idea that the spirit-filled Christian is not held back by fear. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears 
has not been perfected in love. Before we jump into what he means by fear and where that's taking us, we've got to go back to verse 13, all the way through verse 17. Because what's interesting in 13 through 17 is a great summary of the entire letter of 1 John, all the way through. That he is talking about all those things. He's repeating these same ideas leading up to this idea about fear. He says in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. You see the truth there? He's trying to remind us that we have been given the ability to know and to believe and to trust by the spirit whom he's given us. That none of our believing would be possible without the spirit at work in our hearts. So that's the first instance of his grace in verse 13. In verse 14, he says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I mean, that is a major theme already in 1 John, that this is an apostolic letter, that this is a witness from the people, the very people who saw Jesus, who touched him, who walked with him, who were his disciples. John is saying, I know Jesus. I knew him. I knew him in his earthly ministry. Therefore, I'm sharing with you truth. Right? I'm a witness to this, he's saying. that This, is, this gospel is not just a made-up story, but this actually happened. That Jesus is a historical person, and I was with him, John is saying. And so the Spirit has been given to us. This apostolic witness has been given to us. And in verse 15, we're told, whoever confesses, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he, and he in God, meaning believe this message. So John is saying, this is a true message, now put your faith in it. And if you put your faith in it, if you put your faith in Jesus, God will abide in you. So he's, he's kind of giving us this outline of what, how you can have assurance. That's what he's leading us to. That you, if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, he will abide in you. And then in verse 16, he moves to this fact, so that we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. Therefore, it's pointing us to now the love that God has for us. The Spirit working in you. Those who saw Jesus telling you this truth, you believing in it, the love of God entering into your heart. And then lastly, what does it result in in verse 17? By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So that the main point being, it, it leads us to what? Confidence. A sure hope, a certainty of where we stand with God. That when he comes back, when Jesus returns in the day of judgment, we don't have anything to fear. Because all the punishment for our sins, has been poured out on Jesus and not us. So in verse 13 through 17, he is giving us truth. And the point here is that love is rooted in truth. That you can't have true love unless it's rooted in true things. And so he says, see, look what we've been given, all of these truths. And it leads us to a healthy fear of God and not a fear of his wrath and punishment. Look back at verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So it's clear what John is meaning when he says fear here, what we're fearing, what holds us back from love. 
And it's this fear of God's wrath. You know, many people, when they begin their Christian journey, or maybe when they're just learning about the doctrines of our religion, they begin with a fear of hell. They begin with a fear of punishment. And I don't know if that was true for you when you were a child or when you were learning about Christianity, but it was for me. The first thing I feared was I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to go to eternal punishment. And that's not a bad place to start. That's a good fear. We need to fear those things. That those things are real. But we shouldn't stay there, right? Just having a fear of punishment is not a saving faith. You need to combine that with, where do I now turn? Right? I'm going to be punished for my sin. Where can I be saved? And so you look to Christ. You look to the only one that can save you. And that is where salvation happens, is when you turn from this fear of punishment to this, this fear of being eased because you have Christ who saves you. As a young believer, we often fear punishment first before we get to a right fearing of God. We fear the eternal fires of hell before we fear the absence of God. Augustine, the early church father, wrote, The fear by which you fear, lest you be cast into hell with the devil, is not yet pure. For it comes not from the love of God, but from the fear of punishment. But when you fear God, lest his presence forsake you, you embrace him. You long to enjoy God himself. That's the right kind of fear. Fearing to be separated from the God you love. Because you know his mercy, you know his grace, and you know that Jesus has saved you. That's the right kind of fear, a desire for his grace. But the gospel frees us to love. That's the main point of what he's saying, is that if you live your entire life fearing that you're not measuring up in your love, because you never will, I will never measure up, you will never measure up, you'll never love enough to remove the punishment of your sin. We can't do it enough. And if you try to live your life like that, you're going to always feel burdened. You're always going to feel guilty. You're always going to feel that you can't do enough to please God. And so telling people to love others without first telling them of the love of Christ is nothing but turning the gospel into law. It's just another, it's just another rule to keep. Right? I actually came to this text very hesitant because... I often heard that message in church very, very regularly to love God and love others. Love others and go and love others. That was kind of the central theme. But never, very often did I hear that God loves you, that he's the one who saves you, that he's the one that you first experienced love. I remember uh, sitting as a young kid listening to these sermons and and these sermons were basically, I would say, were go out and love others, other people. That was the main kind of, the main thrust of the sermon. And I remember feeling just kind of lost because I knew I couldn't do it well enough. And if this was all that Christianity was, was this message to go and do, go and love, then I was never gonna, that was never appealing to me because I wasn't good enough to do that. But there was an instance in Sunday school at this church that I remember hearing the message of Repentance is actually what we're going to teach at VBS. One of the things we're going to teach is repentance. And what repentance kind of made me think, repentance means turn from what you're doing and do something else, right? Turn toward God. 
it made me realize that I had sin in my heart. Now that's interesting. That's something I can really grab hold of because I realize I'm in God's debt at that point. I need to be forgiven. And then there's so much more you can discover with the gospel that you, you can't do enough. You have to be saved. That it's, it's not just go out and love others. That's not enough. And in fact, that's law. It's not grace. So the message here he's saying is, is that for fear has to do with punishment. That you can't go out and love others in a freeing way if you're always fearing that you're going to be punished. Perfect love casts out fear. And so that first love you need to know is God's love for you. But why, why can loving others be also scary? So here's this idea of, of fearing God rightly, but we can also fear other people when we try to love, right? We can fear rejection. Have you ever tried to really love someone and just been flat out rejected? It's not fun. It's not fun. People may not accept the love you show them. And they may not see the heart that you have for them. How about you young kids in school? Have you ever uh, seen a bully at school who's picking on someone? And, 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 and if you were to stand up for that person uh, who's being bullied, that bully may turn their anger at you, right? If you're trying to do something good, but you need to stand up to them, right? You need to stand up for the victims, the people who are being bullied. But again, you might be rejected. How about the fear of being taken advantage of? Have you ever given your money, your time, your resources to people in need and got nothing in return and you maybe never heard from the person again? Right? Fear of being taken advantage of. People may just disappear and take and take and take. How about the fear of sacrifice and pain? A couple sermons ago, I quoted C.S. Lewis on this idea that when you love, when you truly love another person, that that's not a safe investment, meaning to love at all, C.S. Lewis says, is to be vulnerable. When you love someone, you are exposing your heart to them. And that's a vulnerable place. It's a, it's a place where you could get hurt. He says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure, though, of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. C.S. Lewis says, right? If you don't want to get hurt, don't love anybody. That's what he's saying. See, love opens yourself up to hurt and sadness and grief because we continue to live in a sin-filled world that death and sadness will infiltrate all of our relationships. And Christians aren't spared from that kind of trial and difficulty when we open ourselves up to love. But you know, Jesus knew this well. Did he not? He knew this fear, and he overcame this fear. I was looking in the scriptures for a verse that maybe described that Jesus was afraid or, or feared. The closest thing I could come up with or find was that he said that I'm troubled. And Jesus said he was troubled. And that word tarasso in the Greek is very close to fear. It's turmoil. It's shaking. It's being unsettled, Right? And we can often think of Jesus in the garden, of, of having that unsettledness, that turmoil. He said in John chapter 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come for this hour 
Father, glorify your name. See, he's talking about the cross. He's saying, now my soul is troubled because he's thinking about what he's about to give up, the pain he's about to endure. Another time where Jesus said he was troubled, this word, terasso, was when he was talking about the betrayal of Judas. He said, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You see, Jesus felt the very kind of turmoil and fear that we feel in life, that he knew it. If, you, if you've ever been betrayed by a friend, he felt the same thing. If you ever knew that, that you've got to go through a lot of pain and suffering that, that barely touches what he was going to go through, right? he understands that, that fear and that pain. And what the blessing is to know is that Jesus' perfect record conquers our fear of punishment. That he conquered fear. He conquered all of those sins and struggles that we struggle with perfectly, without any sin. And so if we know that for yourself, then that should conquer your fear as well. That he overcame fear and trepidation so that we could come over, overcome fear and, and love others well. He says in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So that's the first point. That's the first point that the spirit-filled Christian is not hindered by fear. Secondly, the spirit-filled Christian is not controlled by hate. Look with me at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Why do people hate? Why do we hate? Why do we struggle with hate? It's a word we're trying to really get our kids to not use, especially when it's talking about food or something we've cooked for dinner for them. Um, Why do we hate? The reason we hate, and we all struggle with this to a different degree, is people get in the way of what we love. That we're loving things other than God. And see, the world's operating principle is hate. Hate is what bubbles up in our heart when we don't get what we want. When our desires become demands, and when our demands are not met, we destroy anything and everything that comes in our way. In James chapter 4, he says it like this. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, You desire and do not have. So what do you do? You murder. We hate. And that's what hate results in, right? Is murder. But as John has already said in this letter, true believers are not controlled by hate. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's saying hate should not be a characteristic of a believer, hating other people. And though we may struggle against hate, it should not be the regular pattern we see in our hearts. And you know, Jesus, he he gave us an example where he could have hated people, but he loved us instead. That he exhibited this fruit of the Spirit um, from 1 Corinthians 13, you can think of the list of those, those attributes of love from 1 Corinthians 13 
as something we're to do, you know, be loving in all those sorts of ways. But it's also, we should also read it that Jesus did it all perfectly. That he did chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13 perfectly. Love is patient, love is kind. And I want to hang out on that word love is kind. That we're to, to, to be an example of kindness to other people. Some, some people have called that the slender virtue of kindness. And that's what God is for us, that he is kind toward us and that we should be kind toward others. He's, he actually calls himself kind in Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, that it's the loving kindness of our God that saved us. That kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. It's a life-changing love. It's a generous love, His kind love toward us. And as we receive the kindness of God, we're called to extend that same kind of kindness to others. And our kindness to others is in fact modeled upon God's kindness to us. So are you kind? Would you describe yourself as a kind person? Also, um, Jesus could have been very resentful with all the sin and the anger and the murderous plots and the betrayals toward him. He could have been resentful. But he wasn't. Love is not resentful. From 1 Corinthians 13.5. Philip Ryken writes a book on, on this idea of love, loving others well, and he highlights love's ability to forgive and to absorb evil that others do to us. And it's illustrated, really, in Jesus' forgiveness of Peter's denials. Think about Peter's denials. Philip Ryken writes powerfully, Jesus did more for Peter than simply call him to repent when Peter denied him. Because a few hours later, he went to the cross and paid the price for Peter's sins. He did more than just ask him to repent. He paid the price. And in John 21, we see Jesus giving Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for Jesus, three opportunities to match his three denials. Jesus allowed Peter to experience the forgiveness that would launch him into this world-changing ministry of an apostle. So are you a kind person? Ask yourself. Are you a resentful person? Are you forgiving? Do, do some assessment here as we think about what's the life that we're living? What's the life that we're modeling to other people? We shouldn't be controlled by hate. And lastly, the Spirit-filled Christian loves the image of God. Look at verse 21 with me. 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God in whom he has not seen. You see what, you see the logic that John is using here. He's saying, if you, if you see a brother or sister and you're not loving them, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? So the point he's making is that people are made in God's image. Right? That they reflect the Creator. And if you're not loving the image, how can you love who the image points to? That the love, we should love the image of the one you love the most. Thaddeus Williams writes in his book on um, confronting injustice. He says, in, in a sermon on love, Augustine, this early church father, attempted to sum up the entire Christian ethic with the famous line, love God and do what you want. 
His point being, if I treasure God as God, that first affection should recalibrate all my other affections, my other wants. If I love God, I should be recalibrated. I won't want to lie to you since you bear the noble image of the God I love most. I won't want to steal your stuff or your spouse because you carry the unique image of the God I love most. Love God and you will give those who bear your beloved's image the respect they are due. A really interesting week this week. Hannah and I went to, my wife and I went to her 20-week appointment on Wednesday. 20-week appointment. And we got to see the ultrasound of the baby. And it was just an amazing moment as you see how much this baby has developed and is flipping around and touching her toes and doing just putting her body in weird, weird places. I didn't know how she was doing that, but, but seeing all her organs and her limbs and even the 3D image scanning of her face. And we're like, yep, that's Holden. We see Holden right in her face. It was a beautiful and amazing sight. And it's amazing that technology allows you to see these things. Um. And it was interesting, though, going from that appointment on Wednesday and then hearing the news on Friday. Um, it's just kind of a juxtaposition of worlds of hearing the news of the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe versus Wade. And very, very special, right, to go from that Wednesday appointment to the Friday decision. And it's a great day for all who love the image of God. And it's huge progress that our Supreme Court finally took away this constitutional right to an abortion, saying that there is no such right. Uh, it was a huge day for human rights and justice. And, but we need to remember that we've still got a long ways to go in this country. That this didn't, this didn't outlaw abortion, it just took, took the right away nationally, federally. And also, let's not forget what love looks like in a post-Roe versus Wade world. That love looks like compassion and kindness and gentleness toward those who disagree with this ruling, which is a lot of people. And let's not assume that this is going to end all the debates or end uh, the, uh, the fury over this, or the anger toward this. Uh, that persecution is going to die down or something like that. It's probably just going to intensify, to be honest. And as one Christian author put it, our work is really just now starting. That we must help and support moms and dads and babies and love them all, and in so doing, make abortion unimaginable. Right? The, the goal is not just to outlaw abortion, it's to make it unimaginable. That you would never even consider it. For one, because you know that's life, that that's a human being there and not tissue. And secondly, that you'll receive support and love from the church to come around you and to, to help young dads and young moms to support these children and these babies. The work continues, right? We have not arrived. We have not finished. And we see abortion, it's not a new thing, it's historic. We've seen it all throughout history, and we've seen Christians be against it from the very beginning, from abortion and infanticide. But abortion isn't, isn't the only gruesome thing humans are capable of. This tragedy, Williams writes, plays out in gruesome detail throughout the Old Testament. Slavery, murder, rape, 
child sacrifice and abuse and theft happen when people worship idols instead of God. When we're worshiping something other than God, injustice happens towards his image bearers. The first commandment, to have no gods before God, is where any authentically Christian vision of justice begins. Devalue the original by putting something else in his place, and it's easier to treat the images like garbage. If you devalue the original, you'll treat the images like garbage. But if God is God, you'll treat the images with infinite value. And that's babies, unborn, and born, and families, no matter who they are or what they look like. That we will have compassion for all people and their needs. And this also has the implication that when we see those who are suffering around us, that we will do our best to help them. Proverbs 3, verse 27, is very interesting. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Ray Ortland says, the alternative translation in the ESV margin is, do not withhold good from its owners. If I have good I can do for somebody, and then legally I own it, but morally they own it. That's the biblical idea. The state has no right to force me to be generous. And no one can walk into my house and start taking my things away and say, the Bible says that I own it. What the Bible says to them is you shall not steal. But what the Bible says to me is you shall not withhold. You see the difference there? That we are to express our love tangibly with our resources with our, and with our words. A healthy church, Ortland says, is where people gladly express their love for one another with a sense of responsibility to God. That we gladly express that love to one another. Love ought to be actively expressed in love and word and deed by those who know God. That's what he's saying here in verse 20 and 21. 21 saying, this commandment we've had from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. And let's not miss the main point of this whole passage, that we love because he first loved us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we are grateful for coming to us and loving us before we'd even thought about loving you. And Father, we thank you so much for the body of Christ that we um, partake of these elements together as a symbol that we are the body of Christ, that we are to be in your church and a part of it. We do not exist alone. And Father, we long for the day will you return back to you, Jesus, to be with you forever and ever, worshiping you in joy and delight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.